Hi, I'm Caroline, a yoga teacher with a special interest in menopause based in Edinburgh. And hi, I'm Dr. Clara, GP with a special interest in menopause based in North London. And today we are delighted to welcome Dr. Claudia Welch to join us and have a chat with us about all of her work. She is the author of Balance Your Hormones, Balance Your Life, Achieving Optimal Health and Wellness Through Ayurveda, Chinese Medicine and Western Science and the Four Qualities of Effective Physicians. She's a doctor of Oriental Medicine, Ayurvedic practitioner and international speaker and she explores how ideas in Eastern Medicine apply to women's health and today's reality in general. Claudia, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today and thank you for being part of our show. So nice to be here and with sisters. It's just so special. Thank you, Claudia. I thought we should probably begin with just a little bit around the basic principles around Chinese traditional medicine um, and Ayurveda, because I think you know many listeners will be very new to these concepts, um, and for many Westerners, it's just something with, they don't often come across. Um, so maybe just talking us through a little bit of the kind of underlying principles of of the Eastern philosophy of both, if possible. So, you know, when we go to a Western physician and we say, this is what's going on, there's, there's, um, they have several tools, they have surgery, they have pharmaceutical drugs. Um, and Dr. Claire, would you add anything to that list? Unless you've been specially trained in, in nutrition and so forth, would you add anything to surgery and pharmaceutical drugs as primary therapeutic principles? So I think I think those are the main ones. Certainly, um, I think um, I probably would only add things like things like, cog- like therapy. So on, under that umbrella, sort of cognitive behavioural therapy, talking therapy, social prescribing, where you might actually, you know, be diverted away from the GP and perhaps seek alternative therapy rather than coming for the traditional Western medicine. But yes, I think I, I agree entirely with that. And, you know, I had a friend who um, went to a prestigious medical school here in the States, and she said they they did get some nutrition training, six mm-hmm. hours worth. Mm-hmm. And when the funding got cut for their um, in the medical school, they cut out the nutrition part. part. So um, so if I were to have a heart attack, um, have a perforated ulcer, have stomach pain that I didn't know what was going on, I would go to a Western MD. They're incredible tools. The surgery and, and the drugs, these are incredible approaches to fixing a problem. What um, Eastern medicine does, both Chinese medicine, which includes acupuncture and what's called moxibustion, which is heat treatment and um, and herbs, herbal remedies, and Ayurveda, which is your listeners may be familiar somewhat with acupuncture and Chinese medicine, less people are as familiar with Ayurveda. Ayurveda is to India what Chinese medicine is to China, you know, in terms of the, it's ancient, it's thousands of years old, it's a, it's a complete paradigm of um, medical, a way to view the world medically, what's going on inside the body, how it how it gets there and how it's treated. And while, so they're both, they, they both use herbs. Chinese medicine uses acupuncture. Ayurvedic medicine uses some, something called marmas, which are points on the body that you'd press for 
different reasons and with different effects. And they both, so they both use herbs. Um, there's acupuncture in Chinese, marma in Ayurveda. Ayurveda also has a, a, a very in-depth cleansing kind of protocol that is complicated. It's not something that you, you know, learn in an hour and do for a weekend. It's a complicated thing that that really um, very advanced, well, I would say maybe not very advanced, but advanced uh, um, Ayurvedic practitioners can oversee because you can do harm to the to the body. So both of these systems these days are taught over about in India, it's a five and a half year program to become an entry level Ayurvedic physician. In China, it's roughly the same. Um, in the US, there are, and, and Europe, there's usually it's a bit shorter of a program because there's certain things we're not able to practice in these um, countries outside of the origin countries. So if so, what? Why would you go to a, an alternative or complementary, as as it's called, right? Um, care system is if you weren't. They do focus on treatment, but they also very much focus and are incredibly elegant at understanding. And both systems, meaning both meaning Ayurveda and Chinese, have certain strengths of their own in this regard. But both will look at how a disease originated, how it's been nurtured, how it's been allowed to take root in the body. So this will include a lot of things like um, lifestyle diseases that like cancer, not all cancer is about lifestyle and diet. Um, and so forth, but much of it we know is whether it's smoking and um, and alcohol use and and diet. There's these things influence the progression of heart disease and cancer. These these um, these serious epidemics. In you know, it's interesting. We're, we're in the time of COVID as we're recording this, and COVID. I'm not minimizing the impact it has around the world, but if we but heart disease and heart disease still is the number one killer. And if we put a fraction as much of attention on heart disease as we are on COVID, I would be curious what kind of effects we would have. You know, if, if we really said, okay, you know, everybody needs to wear masks and everybody needs to cut out processed foods, for example, right? Like both of those are equally, if you know, important. And if there's one that's more important, that would that'd be a tough call right now because, the diet and lifestyle also plays a part in the mortality of COVID. Mm -hmm. So um, it's the emphasis in Eastern medicine very much is on how do we prevent the beginning and the progression of these diseases? Um, the treatment is harder because the disease has taken deeper root. So the treatment might take a little longer in some cases, in other cases, not, um, but there's they're elegant in understanding the progression the the instigation and progression of of disease. Does that make sense to both of you? Is there anything you would like to add? No, I was just going to say, yeah. I mean, for me, you know, I have an understanding of both, a basic understanding of both. Just being a being a yoga teacher and having studied some, with an Ayurvedic teacher as well. So, as a Yin yoga teacher, I've got I've got an understanding of the underlying principles, and I think you've explained it beautifully, um, Claudia, because actually. It's it's almost I like to think sometimes think about it as, you know, whatever, whatever is going on for that person. It's almost like you begin to have to unpeel some layers 
um, and begin to get to the root of, you know, of where whatever it might be started. And it, it's it's just slowly and taking taking your time to strip those layers back and, and begin to perhaps adjust lifestyle and dietary, you know, elements t- to your life. Um, I really like how you talk about taking lifestyle changes or making lifestyle changes or small dietary changes very gradually you know you're not going straight to the extreme um particularly in in your your book just about slowly slowly adjusting how you eat how you live how 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 you exercise or move as well it's interesting because the thing i like i like that as well the gradual thing the the thing is as i think certain things we benefit very much from doing gradually other things we could benefit very much from either doing gradually or doing suddenly, but we're too scared to do it suddenly, or there's some real um, other legitimate reasons. And I think fear is a legitimate reason to not do something suddenly because we don't have to be dramatic about everything. (laughs) You know, it doesn't have to be, we don't have to be extreme about everything. And that's a a sort of an extreme abrupt adjustment in lifestyle or diet can be unsettling to the nervous system and cause anxiety and increase stress. And part of um, what we know very much across many different fields is, is how um, serious stress is, as a threat to well-being and um, as a promoter of disorder. And you actually begin in your book um, talking about the kind of the stress epidemic and, and, and how that affects women's hormones. And I think that's a, for me, that was just a, a beautiful start because actually, I know we both, myself and Claire, talk a lot about, you know, reducing stress, but particularly as a yoga practitioner, I do a lot of just breathwork classes. And, you know, that's the key for me is the more you can reduce the stress and the stress hormones in the body, the slightly easier everything becomes in life. There's a kind of clarity and an, an, an ease to transitioning as you come through perimenopause and menopause. Yeah, Caroline, very true. And, you know, we could talk for easily this whole um, time that we're together about what stress causes in the body, but maybe just as sort of an interesting place to start here, rather than looking at what it causes, and we can all kind of guess some of that. Um, what are the causes of stress? Like, okay, we know stress causes things, but what are the causes of our stress? And one thing I hear a lot is, oh, society is so fast and I have to speed up to catch up with it, or society doesn't want me to rest, or um, my partner doesn't want me to rest or this kind of thing. And, and I use rest specifically because this feels to me like the root of so much is our inability to stop and our inability to rest. It's curious to me because in my own background, I, I studied Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine and enough Western medicine in order to get my, my head around women's hormones, which is women's health has been a big focus of mine. And, and, um, I studied enough in my early thirties to understand what a culprit stress is and, and what a, 
what a problem it is to constantly be in motion, in forward motion, needing more, doing more, not having enough, nothing is ever enough. That whole thing that so many of us do, I knew intellectually and I saw practically patient after patient after patient suffering because of this way of life. So I knew intellectually, I too was doing that and I needed to stop. And I knew it so much. I so, I so believed it by that point. I'd seen so much evidence that the, the month that I, the very month that I turned 35, I gave over my full-time busy private practice to someone else um, in exchange for being able to go in part-time and do that. And I was still doing writing and teaching and these other things. But for the first time in my life, I had time to lay on the couch and watch a Seinfeld rerun. And because I was too busy when they were first on to watch them, you know, so I'm watching Seinfeld reruns. And it was so hard to stop. It was so hard to rest. It was so, I don't know if embarrassing is the wor- right word or um, like, you know, it's like I real I realized it wasn't my husband. My husband was supportive. I had one of those rare, wonderful supportive partners who totally supports rest. So it wasn't my partner, which was ma- who was making it difficult. Society wasn't knocking on my door in mass saying, no, you must be busy. It was all the little hidden cameras I'd put around the house, the, the little invisible hidden cameras that are always on me that I put there saying, you need to be productive. You need to be, you need to at least look productive. If you hear footfalls in the hall and they come in and see you lying here, you should pick up a magazine and look like you're, you're doing something important. I'm reading this important thing here. I'm bettering myself. I'm not just lying here watching Seinfeld reruns or, you know, so it took me, I, I would say literally six months to, um, to not be embarrassed about resting. And I will tell you, that was when I was 35. I am now 53. It's been almost 20 years since that six-month period. And I would never go back. And I've gotten more and more acquainted with with rest. And it's not because I'm rich. It's not because I'm a trust fund baby. And it doesn't cost anything to rest a little bit when we can. And there's more I want to say about that, but I don't want to dominate here. So I just, I guess, you know, since this is sort of a conversation, if we're looking at the cause of stress, because we get that stress is a cause of lots of things. And I, you know, I have a book about that and can read the book, but if, if we're looking at the causes of stress, you know, what, what is it for us? You know, uh, what is it for us? And um, do you either have anything personal that you'd want to share about that or, or or um, otherwise? No, I was just I was just picking up on a few things that you've mentioned there, and I think it's really interesting the idea that we don't allow ourselves to rest. And you know, in, in practice, I often see, um, and because I I am a female GP, I often see a lot of women, and I see a lot of women who have reached the point where they, you know, burnout is a, is a, a typical term, isn't it? They, they've, um, or, or they, they need to take some time out of work and it gets to the point where they, they've reached their, their limit or probably surpassed their limit and they need to take some time off. But more often than not, when I suggest that to somebody and particularly a woman, 
oh, I can't do that. There's, you know, what a work going to think, you know, I'm, I'm still going to have to do the things I do when I go back. Um, and there is absolutely a factor in that, you know, there is always going to be the work there and there's always going to be something to go back to, but it's almost giving them the allowance and giving them that kind of key to go, well, actually you need to take this time back for yourself and um, almost create that as a goal, a tiny goal, but just create that space for you to recover um, or at least start to recover. We know that that takes some time. Um, but, but yeah, it's giving, it's allowing yourself, isn't it? It's acknowledging that there's a, there's, there's a difficulty in allowing yourself time to, to recover. I love the idea of rest, just that word farming, isn't it? I think we have to give ourselves permission, don't we? And actually, you know, I, I've been working with some long COVID groups over over the last 18 months. And it was interesting. I led them uh, a new group with through a, a yoga nidra yesterday. And, and it was interesting. A lot of them had been practicing yoga nidra, had found them really helpful for deep rest. And somebody within the group had, hadn't done one before. And, you know, she said, just before we start, what is a yoga nidra? You know, and I said, yep, absolutely. It's a really good question. I hadn't gone into the details of it. And, you know, sort of a, a deep rest, a yoga sleep I like to describe it as and she found it really hard and you know it was a lovely there was a lovely kind of coming together actually everybody in the room the virtual room was was female and there was this kind of understanding of it takes practice it takes practice to find deep rest and as you were just saying it took you a good six months and it just takes time to come out of the busyness of the world, give yourself permission to take rest and actually just do, you know, doing nothing. That's it's, it's taking away the guilt, I think, as well. And I think women do suffer often from guilt. They feel they should be doing whatever it might be that they're supposed to be doing. But, but also all too often, I think, and I don't know if you would agree with this, Claudia, we we are approached as Western doctors and certainly, I mean, I I probably, if I take my doctor hat off, still think a bit like this, that you want that quick fix. You want to go and see a doctor. You want to be fixed. You want to walk out of their room having a prescription or having some sort of idea of how that's going to get better in X, Y, Z amount of time. And we know that that's not the case. You know, we know that, it, like you say, it takes time to peel back the layers and really understand how you got to that point, and you may have got to that point over months and years. But alongside that, and Carol and I often talk about this, we think about, we often talk about diet and lifestyle. We often think, you know, speak about the importance of that and and making these little life hacks, little life tweaks that maybe will improve things. But I don't think you can actually underestimate that. And I love the idea that you mentioned earlier on about small changes, small goals, giving yourself something achievable, rather than setting yourself up to fail, which we do a lot of, really, I think. Yeah, yeah. There's so many things both of you said that just trigger things for me. And and so one of those, you know, doing small things, let's start there because that's where you ended. Doing small things, it's like, we think, okay, I got to do a a new exercise regime. I'll do five minutes today, 10 minutes tomorrow, and I'll build these goals. And it's just another thing to do. And it's so interesting with rest, because if your goal is to rest, it's like, okay, I'll rest five minutes today and 10 minutes tomorrow, and I'll rest 15 minutes the next day. It's such, it's so bizarre. We think there's, there's no way that could be scary, but it is. It's scary because, and one of the things you said, Caroline, you used the word guilt, and that's the word I was casting around for when I used embarrassed. 
Because I think there is this guilt, this deep kind of, I can't do this, this real, we don't really, we must not really believe that it's important for us because, uh, you know, it feels self-indulgent or it looks lazy or, um, or something or some, I don't know, but it's for whatever reason, we do seem to have this guilt. So now suppose, just suppose we really did believe that it was really important for us. And that was something that we needed to do. And rather than a goal of addition, it would be a goal of subtraction. Let me take things away so that I can settle. If we really did believe that, and we started to do that little by little. For This is what I'm specifically talking about when I say some things we might be able to benefit from enormously if we could do it all at once, mm. if we could rest as much as we need to all at once. But most of some things we could benefit very much from that approach of really taking what we need all at once and, and other things we need a gradual approach. But I think we can do this in little steps. And and I want to go back just a little bit and say, what do we mean by doing it all at once, like resting all at once? And what I mean by that is really going to this medicine of subtraction. What in my life am I doing that I know in my heart of hearts, in my innermost essence, I do not want to be doing, right? And having the courage in a way to release that thing. And it's strange to have to have courage to release something that we don't want to do. Like, why would you need courage to stop doing something you don't want to do? That's what you want. Or, or conversely, why does it take courage to do something that you deeply want and need to do, like rest or have tea with a girlfriend? Mm-hmm. Like, why does that take courage And if we got rid of everything in our lives that didn't feel true to us in one fell swoop, that's what I mean about doing everything at once. If we did that, that's a terrifying thought. And for many of us, when we really sit with that or start moving towards that, and I think that the reason that that's terrifying is because we think our whole lives will fall apart if we do that. And I like to be open-minded. I think it's possible that our whole lives could fall apart. But what I can say is I've never seen that to be true, except the things that fall apart are the things we don't want anyway. And since most of us, I certainly didn't have, most of us don't have the courage to do all that at once. Taking those little steps at a, one at a time is really helpful. And because we take a little step, we realize that the only things that fall apart are the things that we don't care about anyway, and we don't want, and that are hurting us in some way or another. And that not only that, not only do does life not fall apart, it gets better. And somehow we feel supported and better and healthier because we're happier. And there's a, and so we get the courage to, to throw the next thing overboard. And then life still doesn't fall apart, the parts that we want, and it feels better and it feels okay. And we keep, so little by little, we get the trust to be able to jump off the cliff, throw something over the boat, you know, whatever you want to call it, right? We, we develop the trust. And then I think life becomes more essential 
more in line, more in integrity with what our innermost essence is asking of us. And that's very important because doing that doesn't ensure that life will be easy, but it does ensure, in my experience, that it will be right. And when we're approaching life from a feeling like this is right, it's hard, but it's right, or this is right, and it's joyful, and it's right, or it's restful, and it's right, it certainly can be hard and right. When we approach it from right is the criteria, like right being what's in line with my innermost essence, our whole chemistry changes to meet that situation in a very different way than if we say, this is not fun, not what I want, and it's hard, and it's not in line with. Those are two very different situations. Hard and not in line with my innermost essence is a whole different chemistry, literally, in the body that, that stands up to do that work than the chemistry that's generated by this is hard, but it's right. It's in line with my innermost essence. So to me over, I don't know, some decades of working with women's health and hormones and all this, I've come to see it as an ethical issue almost. And for me, ethics is, am I living according to my innermost essence? And if I am, it changes my chemistry, including my female hormones, including the stress hormones, et cetera. So it's important. So it goes back to, okay, we know stress is a problem, but what's causing the stress? And if it's my embarrassment about rest or my fear about throwing things overboard that I don't want and not including things that I do want, rest, tea with girlfriends, chanting, walking, taking care of my sick mother, whatever it is, it could be hard. It could be easy. It's it's right. It's in line. Uh, my, my chemistry lines up. And that's something that I think sometimes Western MDs like yourself, Dr. Claire, really appreciate learning more about that because in Western medicine, we're taught about all these different hormones and what they do, but we don't really know sometimes why they do what they do. And um, we can get there with Eastern medicine, some and saying, oh yeah, our thoughts and that's why it's so good that, like you said, therapy and cognitive be behavioral therapy and things like that are so useful as well. Well, our hormones, for example, interact. So, you know, our stress hormones and our sex hormones, for example, and, and how actually they're really they're really closely linked. And what I think is really important is and we're seeing more of it, certainly in the UK, is Western medicine embracing Eastern medicine a bit more. So um, opening the door slightly, opening our eyes to um, perhaps alternative forms of of treatment and not necessarily, there's not one road for, 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 for us all, there's, there's multiple roads. And I think that's what I really, I, I'd like to explore with you, Claudia, is just a bit about how you perceive that kind of yin and yang really between the sex hormones and the stress hormones and how that can affect perhaps even our perimenopause, our menopause, or just our state of being. Yeah. So this is a really big topic. It's a really long topic, but I, I'm, I'll, I'll distill it. It's This is just the tiniest nutshell, but there's good resources to go to to build on this nutshell. And let me say that, you know, this is a simplistic way of looking at things, but maybe it's better to say it's a simple way of looking at things and it doesn't make it wrong. What I've found that is that this perspective that I'm about to share holds up in even complicated 
situations. And so let me let me let me just discuss a, a little background to this perspective. In Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine, they don't talk about hormones. They don't label hormones. And even Western medicine didn't discover the first hormone until 1902. And so this is a relatively new conversation for the the world, right? Is to look at 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 phenomena in the organism through the lens of hormones, what's happening with hormones. We have known about organs and systems and digestive enzymes and so for a long time, but hormones relatively new. And um, when we look at it through, through uh, Western science for through Western medicine, because that's the only place that we, you know, it's, they're not talked about in the ancient classics of Ayurveda and Chinese medicine. What we find in Western medicine is this is this hormone. This is where it's produced. This is where it goes in the body. And this is the effect that it has. This is another hormone. This, this is where it's produced. This is where it goes in the body. And this is the effect that it has on those encountered tissues, right? Over and over. And so you get this array of hormones and there's many of them. It's kind of overwhelming. And I don't know many, many MDs, Western doctors who really feel like they get it, why they interact the way they do, because there's just so much information. And, you know, I had um, studied Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine, which don't talk about hormones. I, I was, I had opened a practice and I had a busy practice and all these women, mostly women like yourself, Dr. Claire, being, you know, being a woman practitioner, you get all these female patients and in alternative medicine, I'm going to make up a statistic here. 95% of our patients are women, no matter what the sex of the practitioner, right? Or what the gender of the practitioner. So all these women coming in, oh, my hormones are out of whack, this and that, but they don't really know what that means. And neither do I, because what does that mean? My hormones are out of whack and general ideas. And so I thought, okay, what I, I know that Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine don't talk about hormones per se, but I very much trust that they will give me a lens through which to look to understand and organize the information about hormones and simplify it in, in a way, because that's the, that's one of the elegant parts of Eastern medicine. And so I, I sat and I poured through Western stuff. This was before the internet. So I was pouring through any book I could find, any article I could find and, you know, library and, you know, this kind of stuff. And then the internet came, I had seen anything. It just came in after at that point. And then I was like looking at everything I could find and it was overwhelming the way it is. This hormone is here. It goes there. It does this, this hormone is here. It goes there. It goes this. like, what's the pattern. And you know, those pictures that you see that have some kind of repeating pattern in them, and you're supposed to look at it and see a ship or a fish or something, and you can't see it, and you can't see it, and you can't see it, and then you can see it, and once you see it, you can't unsee it. It was a bit like that. I I, I was looking at all this information, and um, all of a sudden, it was like, oh, is it this? is it this simple? And I kind of went back through everything, and it matched, and it matched, and it matched, and it matched. And there's, you can get into complexity through this lens, but the basic lens is a very simple lens. And it's an important lens, a very important lens through which to view reality. And it's the language of duality. And this language of duality, which is to say everything that we see and experience can be described in relative ways through duality, is a concept that is 
shared in an identical way between Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine. There's not much else. There's very few things that are the same, the same ideas and the same, the same way of talking about those ideas. It's exactly the same for this, this particular lens through which to view reality. It's exactly the same in both Ayurveda and Chinese medicine, obviously different vocabulary for it in, in Chinese medicine, it's yin and yang in Ayurvedic medicine. There's, Santarpana or Brahmana versus Apatarpana and Langana. So in my book, I use yin and yang because it's easier to pronounce, although many people mispronounce it, yin and yang. It's yin and yang. Yang rhymes with long. Yin rhymes with in. So it's yin and yang. And, and that's pretty amazing that they must be so they must be such archetypal fundamental principles to have been described in exactly the same way in both in two different systems that don't do that with most things so i think that that's particularly interesting in terms of the essentialness the essential truth in a way the essential primalcy right of um of this particular viewpoint so what are the two ends of this um, dynamic, of this polar dynamic? What are the two duality extremes? On one hand, we have yin or santarpana or brahmana, all synonyms. And that that end of the duality is, it uh, describes heavy, grounding, calming, cooling, building principle. You get that feeling just saying it and hearing it? calming, nourishing, building, cooling, yeah. right? It's just, it has a certain, hmm. It's kind build. of grounding. Yeah. It's grounding. It's building. It's, it, it's stabilizing. Those, those are its qualities. That's on one side. What are you going to have on the other side? Exactly the opposite. Stimulating, motivating, lightening, um, uh, activating, mm-hmm. hot, ambitious movement, that kind of stuff. And the, the body is constantly existing in between these two polar extremes in this very prima donna middle, right? Hot on one side, cold on the other, 96.8 degrees Fahrenheit. And is it 27 degrees um, Celsius? For body temperature in the UK. Yeah, about 37, about 37. 37, right, not 27, 37. Okay, so 37, so hot, cold, 37. Hot, cold, 98.6. A couple more degrees on either side and you're really uncomfortable. A couple more degrees and you're dead. You're always, the body is always managing to stay in this narrow um, middle ground. That's where we're comfortable. That's where we can survive. And that's where we can thrive. And so the body is always navigating and balancing between, uh, between polar opposites. So nothing in the world is completely yin or completely yang. Nothing is completely grounding. Nothing is completely activating. It might be 99.9% activating, but this is one of the rules of Chinese medicine and Ayurveda, but it'll still have that s- small part of 
the, you know, small part, if, if it's grounding, it'll have a small part of activating. If it's activating, it'll have a small part of grounding. So it's all, it's about relativity. Nothing is completely one or the other, but everything can be described as more yin or more yang. So the moon, which is cooling and, you know, nighttime and that that's going to be more yin, the sun, which is hot and, and chlorophyll and act, energy and all that kind of stuff, that's more yang, right? So there's solar, yang, lunar, yin, this kind of idea. And if we are then to look at hormones through this lens, we're going to see, of course, stress hormones, which are built to activate us and motivate us and get us out of the way of, of, of stress uh, or threat, fight or flight stuff. That's very young. That's motivating. That's activating. That's stimulating, right? Ambition in my work, going all the time, movement, eating on the go, right? That's all very young. Thinking, lot mobile thinking, right? That's all very young. That's on the go. On the other hand, the grounding building principle. Oh, what is more building than estrogen? It builds the uterine lining. It builds breasts. It just is, it's nourishing. It's calming. It's grounding these kinds of things in excess. It'll what it'll build too much mass. It'll do too much building. So there's a problem with too much building, too much yin. And there's a problem with too much yang, too much stress, too much activity. And we've got to balance these. If we've got one over the other, we're a couple degrees off that comfortable, healthy middle ground. And if you got a few more, you're on your way to dead. Sorry to say, right? It's we're prima donnas. We have to accept that. And a big thing that's hard for us is to surrender to the pace of the body. And the body wants us to listen to it and slow down most of us. So there's a there's a whole bunch of other really interesting things if we go into that but but one of the things in terms of stress hormones and sex hormones hormones how they interact is because stress hormones get us out of the way of danger our body if we don't have enough of what it takes to build both sets of hormones equally it will always prioritize 100% of the time survival over reproduction and so it will always give resources. If resources are um, in short supply, it will always give them predominantly to sex hormone, uh, stress hormone side of things. And so we should really never have too little sex hormones. Every tissue in our body makes them. Every tissue in our body can transform precursors into estrogen. For example, aromatase will trans can has the potential to transform testosterone into estrogen instantaneously. How unbelievably miraculous is that? It's incredible. So this is, you know, our thoughts, our behaviors, our relationships, our emotions, they're all creating chemistry. Our stress is creating more hormones, uh, more sex hormones, stress hormones, sorry. And our feelings of connection will create oxytocin. Our thoughts create biology. Our feelings create biology. Our relationships create biology. They create chemical changes. And these chemical changes interact 
And there's reasons and um, there, there's reasons why we do end up having low stress hormones, low sex hormones, because the stress hormones basically go and steal the material and t- transform it into themselves. And so it really is up to us to um, to address that stress piece. And if we want to if we really get that that's important, it's simple, but it's hard because it means changing our lives, usually our belief systems often and our behavior, certainly. It was interesting there, the word listen came up. You mentioned the word listen there and listening to our bodies, listening to our inner selves, our inner essences. And I think this is something we ignore often through our earlier life, you know, sort of, you know, teenage years, perhaps 20s, 30s. And then suddenly, you know, we get to this kind of perimenopause stage and we suddenly are woken up to listen. It's, you know, this balance that you're talking about, that middle ground, we're suddenly going a bit more yin, going a bit more young. And actually it's all just all over the place. And this is the, almost the first time it's like our body is saying, right, well, now you've just got to listen to me um, because we need to find some balance here. Um, and it, it's it's not that it's too late it's just can come as quite a shock you know for a lot of women often if they're coming to perimenopause in that midlife stage you know you've just lived how you've lived and so suddenly pairing things back you know as we were talking about taking a little bit more time for yourself perhaps for something joyful or or taking away the things that don't bring you joy or don't help or nurture you in some way or don't serve you in any way Big, those are big changes, but coming back to that concept you were talking about, Claudia, of, of making small changes very gradually is perhaps the way to slowly transition it and come back round to yourself. Learning what your body needs, because like you say, you know, you sort of drift through your 20s and 30s and you can pretty much eat what you like, you can pretty much do what you like and things remain relatively stable don't they you you just sort of you're you're just on this this ride it's all sort of mostly okay and then these fluctuating hormone levels kick in and what you were doing doesn't serve you well what you were doing what you were eating how you were living how you're working doesn't necessarily serve you well and you have to then alter the way you've been and again that can be quite stressful it can add to your stress levels it can be quite anxiety inducing and working out what then works for you whatever that means so whether that's sort of your movement levels your your stress levels whatever that is for you can be can be quite a daunting task particularly when your body is already under a lot of stress in the perimenopause or menopause yeah well one one thing you know that a lot of I'm sure you've both heard uh, a lot of people talk about is this fatigue and menopause and, um, and this idea that, Oh, I can't do what I used to be able to do fine. But I think, and um, I think those of us who have worked, you know, um, like yourselves and, and myself with women for a long time, a lot of those women in their twenties and thirties and forties, they are not doing well. They just, they never actually were able to do all those things with no consequences. I mean, they might've been easier to ignore the consequences, but if we were over pushing ourselves, we were having anxiety, we were having insomnia, we were having 
you know, mood swings. We were having menstrual irregularities. We were having, there were all these things. There were signs. We were having headaches. We were uh, not feeling like we were in our right lives. We were having all those things, but they were easier to ignore. And so, like you say, you know, perimenopause and menopause, it makes it harder to ignore. It forces the issue. What are we doing here? But thank God, because then we have a, we have be, really, because then we have a chance in a, in the second half of our lives to, to do things differently and have the life that we really want to be having live the life we really want to be living. And I'm not talking from like, Oh, you can have a pool and a fan. You might not have a pool and a fancy house and everything that you that we're told is a marker of success and happiness. It might be a very small place. You know, maybe we realize, oh, I need I can't afford all this. I'm going to pare down so that I'm not spending 60 hours a week working on something that I don't care about. You know, whatever it is, some change can be forced. Mm-hmm. It is really useful to be looking at this stuff, I think in the decades leading up to it so that we start to start to employ the medicine of subtraction um, and start to, you know, really consider according to our innermost essence, why we are here and where we're going and live with those kind of things. So that's one thing that, um, that I was going to, yeah, mention I love that idea. I think, uh, you know, taking taking things away, the, the law of subtraction for me really sort of holds true. I think that's something, not a negative thought, or, you know, a, a positive step, really. Very positive. And, you know, going back to, again, since this has been brought up a few times in the in terms of the gradualness and step by step, I I always think of this story from Chuangzi, the um, Chinese um, philosopher, Taoist Chuangzi. He has this story and I'm going to butcher it, but it was uh, it was told to me in my in undergraduate degree in the University of Vermont. I had this survey introduction to Eastern philosophy course and I heard it there. And so that was very many years ago. And so I don't remember it well, but it goes something like this. And I'm clearly paraphrasing and butchering it, but go something like this. There's a bottomless pit. There's two guys standing at the edge. There's a game. The game has one rule. You have to jump in. That's the setup. First guy jumps in. Second guy, totally afraid. Like, oh my God, he just jumped in. How did he do that? Calls, calls into the first guy. And let's forget for a moment that by the time his voice reaches the guy, the guy can't hear him anymore. All right. Forget about that. This is, this is not real. This is just true. So the guy calls down and says, how did you do that? How did you just jump in? Why weren't you afraid? And the guy who's falling calls up, it's bottomless. And I think that that's, isn't that brilliant? And I think that that's what we think. Like, Oh my God, if I do this thing, it's going to be so scary. If I take this leap to, to, to throw something off the boat and to employ the medicine of subtraction, it's going to be so scary. And so what's going to happen? I'm going to hit this bot. There's no bottom. Just keep doing it. It just becomes funner. 
yeah. it becomes you know <laughs> <what's> scary <laughs> and if you don't try you don't know you know it's it, it's a huge it can be scary to begin with but just try as we were talking coming back to these ideas of small changes and gradual changes trying one thing i often suggest phone a friend make an appointment to go for a walk you know make a plan to meet them for a cup of tea a cup of coffee whatever it might be just once a week whether it's that friend or it's a different friend each week just start with that and suddenly that creeps into a longer walk or another friend or a, you know a phone call with somebody else just that deeper connection we were talking about that can bring so much joy and as you begin to remind yourself of these things that do bring joy and space perhaps rest and and this kind of heartfelt, uh, heartfelt sense of looking after yourself, then other things creep in, just as you've been saying, Claudia. You know, these these little 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 things that you suddenly rediscover or all discover as as you come through your perimenopause and menopause journey. There's something that you mentioned in your book that I I really enjoyed. Um, I love a list. <laughs> I love making lists, and they're not always to do lists. They're just lists so I can remember things often. But um, there was a part in the book where you're talking about sort of dietary changes and and, and maybe making a list of some of the things that you would maybe like to begin to think about cutting out whether that's processed food or you know i've got a big sugar addiction i just i've got a sweet tooth but making a little list of, of what's what maybe you're eating and then what what could you begin to translate that to and not cut you know for me it's not about cutting everything out it's just about you know reducing it a little bit or just beginning to swap a few things out and these tiny tiny little changes one by one can make quite a big difference i agree there's there's real there's real consequences for not living, uh, not to be fear-based here, but I, I'll, I'll start with fear-based and get around to positive. But there's real consequences to not living in harmony with our innermost essence, because the longer that we are feeding our stress hormones and they're robbing our sex hormones and throwing that balance off. And, you know, let me be clear, what I've found is you cannot have balanced hormones if you have high stress you can't that because they're too inter interconnected. And so if that goes on for too long, it affects the endocrine system. It affects the, it affects first the adrenals, all else being equal, the adrenals, then the insulin producing portion of the pancreas, then the thyroid. I mean, how many people do we know with thyroid? It's big deal. Then ovarian hormone, it affects all of these things. And that becomes it's not like we're suffering in our lives now so that we can have a better life tomorrow. It's like we're suffering now to get punished later. It's this, it's horrible, right? So it's really now is the time to, to live in according to even in little steps, like you're saying over and over in little steps. Okay. I know this is hard. This is deeply what I want to do. Let me make a little step towards it and see what happens. And that already changes the chemistry. And, you know, changing the chemistry changes what is irrigating our organs and our systems, literally through blood and body fluids and lymph and plasma and whatever is irrigating it, all those things. We are changing our chemistry by making those changes. So it's a real change we, we can do. It costs nothing. It's available to everyone, you know, um, to do, to, to do these things the best we can and to 
practice, train in it. And it's always a practice, isn't it? All of this, these lifestyle yeah. choices for ourselves. It's, it's a practice and it's not about getting it completely right. It's just about beginning to explore and, uh, and challenge our way of thinking and how we're looking after ourselves. There's a lovely quote um, in your book um, and you've, you've, it's, I think you say it's a Native American saying and it's one that I wanted to share with the listeners. And it goes like this. At her first period, a girl meets her wisdom. Through her menstruating years, she practices her wisdom. And at menopause, she becomes her wisdom. And for me, I I keep coming back to that. I just keep coming back to that because I think... There's this element as we come through the other side, as we, as we meet, reach menopause and then post-menopause, is it's almost we've had to relearn about ourselves. This is a kind of, you know, it's often called second spring, isn't it, within the kind of Eastern medicine or Eastern translation of, of this next stage of life. It, it becomes a, a translation and a transition into a new you in some ways. You know, the, the essence is still there, but... It, everything everything this wisdom that you have grown and to understand or your inner is in wisdom you've been talking about the inner essence claudia it, it does change us as we it go does. Into this next week. and you know the the second book that i wrote is called um four qualities of effective physicians but what i really wanted to, to call it was becoming medicine <laughs> because there's a you know we prescribe medicine whether we're in western medicine or um chinese medicine or ayurveda but but when we become medicine, that is uh, that that's really helpful. And we all have a medicinal, a poisonous or a neutral effect on everything and everybody that we come in contact with. And we can develop uh, a, a, the ability to have to to become medicine, to have a med- medicinal effect on people. And um, I think Dr. Claire was talking earlier about a quick fix. And that's one thing that we can do that actually is instantaneous. You know, they did a study once on they measured everybody's oxytocin levels at a wedding and and the levels were pretty good, as you might imagine, because it was a happy experience and connecty and all this. And but the person who the person who had the most the highest level of oxytocin was the bride and anybody focused on the bride, not touching her, not making love to her, not licking her, you know, like anybody just looking at her, their level were increased as well. She was medicine for those people because they were feeling connected and loving your pet, right. Can be medicine and this connecting. And when that, you know, when oxytocin rises, just as an example, it counteracts some of the negative effects of stress. So it is a medicine just being around people. And when we see, for example, going back to the rest thing, but going back to the rest thing, when we see somebody comfortably resting, not feeling guilty about it, but embodying rest. I think we get a quick fix. I think we get medicated immediately with permission and with an example like, oh, that's an attractive look. Somebody who's centered and grounded and resting and breathing. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I can tell, I feel that is right oh, let me embody some of that. I often say that to clients, you know, they're they're inquiring about coming to a yoga class. And I just say, you know, you're really welcome to come, but don't just try my yoga class, you know, try a few yoga classes because there's that element of someone holding the space for you and you feeling able to 
practice to relax, to restore, to come into Shavasana at the end, to breathe in comfort. And whoever that person is guiding you, you need to have that connection. You need to have that kind of sense of being held and, and looked after and nurtured. And that goes with all practitioners, whether it's your, you know, your GP um, or someone else you are seeing. It, do, it doesn't matter who it might be. It, it's having that connection because actually, actually that in itself becomes the medicine. It's so true, Caroline. And, you know, I've read a study that, you know, if you go in and you see your GP and you leave their office feeling better, you have a better prognosis. If you leave their office, even after the consult feeling worse, it's a less good prognosis. And that's not, that's not dependent on what the prognosis is that you've been told is your prognosis, right? It's the interaction, that interaction. And I just also found just what you were saying, Caroline, I took a yoga class online with Angela Farmer recently, and there were things that I do myself all the time, but not all the time, but very often and being guided through them by her opened up those places all the more. There's, there's something like, there's something so powerful and um, quadrupled about, uh, about the experience by doing it with and guided by someone else. It's true. I think we're going to have to wrap our, our conversation up, Claudia, which feels a huge shame because I think, well, I think we've worked out we could just talk for hours. <laughs> so much, Claudia. It's just been so enlightening speaking to you and, and hearing some ideas and, and getting getting a little bit of an understanding between that dynamic of our hormones and how they affect us. It's been really nice to be with both of you. And I really appreciate the, the marriage between the Western wisdom and the, the Eastern wisdom and, and you both bringing kind of both of that to, to the table. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. I, I wanted to just finish with mentioning your website. You can you can read more about um, Claudia on her website, drclaudiawelsh.com. And on there, she's got you've got some wonderful online courses. But there's a there's a particular course on women's health and hormones, part one, which is a a really good place to start if you want to learn a little bit more about what we have been talking about. Thank you, everybody.